Well, good morning. I think we are starting a three, three or four part. I can't remember. Um, I think it's four, actually. But if, it's, if it turns into three, you'll know that something got yanked. Um, no. Um, anyway, it's, it's good to be with you. I, my, my hope is I, I kept this rather general as a title. I'm not good at titles anyway. Um, I just want to do uh, four texts with you that are Adventy in nature. And I sort of wrestle with some texts and think about this particular season with you. I guess there's a sense in which I should probably <clears throat> say uh, Happy New Year to you. I mean, this is, this is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Advent is the beginning of the new calendrical year within the church calendar. So we, and there's something, now this is new. I mean, those of you know, I'm not a cradle Episcopalian. Uh, so this, a lot of the, a lot of the rubrics and the, and the liturgical calendar, these are, these are still somewhat new in my orbit. And yet I found my own spiritual life to be um, benefited, I think, greatly by uh, a recognition of the seasonal, rhythmic nature of the Christian life, that we begin a new year, that we enter into a season of anticipation, that we go into Christmas, and then on and on. Um, I was surprised, and I should have known this, but, I, but I'm, I'm very sad I didn't, in working through Exodus this semester with my students <coughs> at Beeson, uh, we came to Exodus chapter 12, which is the, the text on the Passover. And if you remember this, the Peshach, or the Passover, um, in that particular chapter, God tells Moses, now set aside this particular day of the year as the beginning of the calendar year for you now, which was a significant shift within the ancient Near Eastern world from the particular calendar that Egypt would have observed where the new year began in harvest sometime in the fall um, to a more lunar understanding of the calendar that located now the beginning of the new year back in something like March or, or possibly April, depending on, on the moons. But what I found fascinating about this move that you had in Exodus as it re- related to the calendar was to recognize that this shift in the calendrical order for Israel, for ancient Israel, had to do with locating their particular new year on um, the redemptive activity of God for His people. So, in other words, the shift that occurred from the fall into the spring for Israel had to do with the ordering of the calendar around God's redemptive activity for His people. The new year begins... And with an emphasis on the Passover, with an emphasis on um, that particular celebratory event that God had come to redeem His people. Now you know Rosh Hashanah, for those of you who are sort of experts in this, actually comes in, the, the, the other uh, new year for, for Israel comes in the fall. Now, there's lots of debates on how this all happened. They have kind of two new years. But the liturgical new year for uh, rabbinic Judaism comes in the spring. This is when, similar to our, to our Advent. There's something significant about that. We're allowing the redemptive activity of God for His people to be the means by which we order our year, by which we order our lives, by which we order the seasons of our existence. It's actually quite, quite redemptive and quite, quite moving. Now, we're in the season of Advent um, I think it's a blessing of God's providence, personally, that the modern church of the West enters into the season of Advent during this particular time in our calendrical year. Now, I'm going to spare you one more speech on the dangers of commercialism and 
consumerism post the Macy's Day parade. Uh, I'll let Linus do the dirty work one more year. Uh, and Charlie Brown's Christmas special, surely my favorite. I mean, even even my poor middle son Jackson, just last night at the dinner table, said um, to us, "You know, I'd like to ring one of those bells and get money outside of a one of these grocery stores." And we were kind of moved. Like, well, that's quite philanthropic of you, Jackson. And we said, "Well, what, what would you want to do with the money?" He said, "Well, I would want to keep it, obviously." Right? <laughs> and then we said, "Well, that's not really what those people are doing, Jackson. They're." It's, collecting that money, hopefully for charity. That's what they're doing. He says, okay, well, then I'd, I'd give them 10%. Um, so obviously my, my own son is, is in the middle of this, right? Now, there was a time in the church's life <clears throat> when Advent was observed much like Lent. So it wouldn't really be an inappropriate question to ask, so what are you giving up this year for Advent? Now, in time, fasting was no longer formally prescribed, but the solemn character of the season was not lost. And that's the color purple, as you saw already in our in the nave today and in the church. The purple is the liturgical color throughout the world. This is a solemn, a solemn season. Now, you're all very well trained here at Advent. I know this. So I'm not saying anything, any, anything new. But for reinforcement's sake, Advent's not Christmas, just like Lent is not Easter. We enter into this season with the knowledge that something is wrong. We enter into this season with the knowledge that human flourishing around the world is incompatible with what we see around us. So this yearning for Christ's appearance, this yearning for His advent, this hope for Christ's coming is not inoculated, is it? by the pablum and, and the sentimentalism of Gene Autry's voice or, or Frosty's corn-cob pipe. And lest I sound too pious right now, just know 96.5 is on our, on our, in our house a lot. Right. So the point that I'm making is simple. The season of Advent taps into the very core of our existence as Christians who live life in the reality of the gospel. We're caught, aren't we, between the promised presence of Jesus and his very real absence. We're caught right in that tension. Where we know that Jesus told us things in the Gospel of John, for example, in what scholars refer to as the farewell discourse, where Jesus says, um, I'm leaving, that's bad news, right? But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm gone, if you abide in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit. And then John 16, when I go, I will send my spirit to you. And this is one of those kind of awe-inspiring verses that continues to make me scratch my head. But when I I go, I'm going to send my spirit to you and you'll do greater works than these. Wow. So we do know that Jesus promised that he was leaving and he also promised that he would still be present with us. But we are caught in that tension. And the reality of our lives is, is we don't really have to look too far within the sphere of our own lives or in our neighborhoods or the world around us to recognize that is exactly where we are. Jesus, we believe that you are present with us and we yearn for it. I don't know why you come to church every Sunday, but I assume it's similar to the reason that I come to church on Sunday. It's because we are hungry for the presence of Jesus. 
We're hungry for the preached Word so that the living Word would communicate His own self to us as we experienced already this morning. We come to the communion table, the Eucharist table, week in and week out, hungry for the presence of Jesus. Hungry to ingest Him, right? So that we feed spiritually on His very body and on His very blood for the sake of the health of our own souls. That's why we come. We yearn for His presence. We do small groups in a church like this because we yearn to experience the presence of Jesus in our midst because where two or three are gathered there, what? I am in your midst. But you know as well, don't you, those of you who've suffered, which I imagine is most of you, that we also live in the reality at times of His absence where we recognize just things aren't right. When, when death comes, um, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we know that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. So when we enter into a season of Advent, much like we enter into a season of Lent, it's a time for reflection. It's a time for soul-searching. Not navel-gazing, but soul-searching. To live before the Lord in the reality of the Gospel and in the hope that He will come again. I mean, you you think about this creed that we say every week in some form or the other, whether it's the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed or whether it's the Apostles' Creed, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's Advent language. That's the language of Advent. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. A pastor that I had in the past um, would tell the congregation regularly that when he was on his deathbed, or when he is on his deathbed, he wants friends around him telling him, that the gospel is true, that the resurrection is real. Similarly, by the way, some of the great saints of the past had that same experience, Luther and Calvin. Luther's on his deathbed saying, Read to me, De Profundis, Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto you, O Lord. If you mark sin, who could stand? Calvin was on his deathbed, surrounded by those who were telling him the truth of the gospel. That's Advent kind of language. That's an Advent kind of experience that we live in the full reality of this world. We do not get emancipated or inoculated from the complexities and the suffering of this world. But we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And Lord, help our unbelief. So the text I want to look at with you this morning is from Jeremiah 33. This, by the way, is the first Lent reading from last year's uh, lectionary. Jeremiah 33, verses 14, 15, and 16. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, that is Jerusalem or Judah, will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah or Yahweh Zitkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So, Right in the middle of Jeremiah, and we spent time in Jeremiah in this class before, so I won't belabor you with this, but right in the middle of Jeremiah 
And, well, let me back up. If you try to read Jeremiah from the beginning to the end and think you're going to follow a nice literary or, or historical chronology, you will get temporal whiplash. I guess that's the best way to put it. I mean, you're going to go from the time of before the exile to right in the middle of the exile to then before the exile. And you're not going to... It's, it's really kind of hard to, to make sense of it. Matter of fact, uh, John Bright, in his famous commentary on Jeremiah, said, Jeremiah is a hopeless hodgepodge, right? Well, I, that's, I'm not quite that keen on that statement, but he, he understands this is a complex organization of the biblical material, the prophetic material. Another commentator was famous for saying, if you think you've understood Jeremiah, you really haven't, right? It's that kind of thing. But whatever you make of the structure of Jeremiah, and I'll just give you my own view on this, I think Jeremiah is set up between the first half, chapters 1 to 25, that emphasize the judgment of God, and then the latter part, 25 and following, that emphasizes salvation, with that not always working out very neatly, but that's the kind of larger canonical shaping. But right in the middle of all of the mess of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is a kind of Lent Adventy text as well, isn't it? We did a series on Jeremiah a year or so back in the chapel at Beeson Divinity School, and our dean titled the series Love in the Ruins. Well, that sounds about right, actually. I mean, Jeremiah, what is Jeremiah's prophetic word? His prophetic word is, well, we have to discern whether or not we are in a season of judgment or a season of mercy. That's the discerning process that is going on for me as a prophet. And let me go ahead and tell you very clearly, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, all these great kings that were there on the throne in, in Judah, let me tell you, this is a time of judgment. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian hordes are not foes to be trifled with. And if you think you can set yourself up over against Nebuchadnezzar, just go ahead and know you're not really fighting against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a puppet in the hand of a sovereign God. You are fighting against God. This is a time of judgment. Yield. And how do you think they responded to that message? Well, that's not really the kind of prosperity Zion gospel we were hoping for, Jeremiah, right? I mean, that's not going to sell books, right? Lifeway, that's like not even on the top 100 at Lifeway. I mean, we want to hear good news. You know, this is the kind of God's best plan for you now stuff. Um, and, and Jeremiah says, well, I, well, this is God's plan for you now. This is judgment. So, so what do they do to Jeremiah? Well, they do this to priests and prophets who give words that people don't really want to hear. They, they, they lock them up. And this is what happened to Jeremiah. He gets locked up. He's down in a prison. And then we're in Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33, which is, I think, very, very wonderfully referred to as the book of consolation. So here you have this large, sort of difficult book, but right smack in the middle of it are four chapters, rich chapters of prophetic hope that God's word of judgment is not a final word. And Jeremiah is writing these words. Look up at uh, chapter 30. Well, you don't have Bibles. I'll, I'll read it to you. Now, chapter 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So so where is he receiving this word? Jeremiah is receiving this word while he's still under house arrest. He's basically still in prison. That's where the word of the Lord is coming to Jeremiah, this this prophetic, hopeful word of the Lord. We're kind of a long way from icicles and frosty now, aren't we? Right. 
I mean, this is a hard word. This is a difficult word. It's a difficult time, a difficult season. And now Jeremiah is speaking a word of consolation. And it's in the middle of this ruin. It's in the middle of Jeremiah being in prison. It's in the middle of Jeremiah being shut up by the guard that God reveals His ultimate goodwill for His people. They were in a hopeless place. I'm not really proud of this. I may have said it to some of you in another context, but I, I started humming a song that I would hear in various places. I'm, I'm not a pop... I, I know some pop music, but it's not... Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of... Uh, the, the top 40 charts, I, I couldn't give you any, any insight on that. Um, but there was this song that kept being sung by... Um, I'm embarrassed to say this here. But Rihanna. Um, uh, um, and I... I we we found it's, it's, the, the lyrics are really rather profound. She says the same thing over and over and over again. Um, we we found you know this song. We found love in a yes. You knew it. I was testing you all. We found love in a hopeless place, and it just keeps saying that over and over again. We found love, and I kind of you know could kind of get into that a little bit. Um, it's not really my you know, but Rihanna. <laughs> I'm going to regret saying this tomorrow. But that really taps into, I think, illustratively what's going on here in Jeremiah. We're finding love. We're finding hope in what seems to be a hopeless place. And, and, And what we're seeing here in Jeremiah chapter 33 is the character of God is on display again for us. That He speaks a creative word into a hopeless place and orders His world again. I mean, you think about it, and we did this already earlier in the, earlier in the, in, uh, in the dean's class, the, the last class that we did, but here's Israel with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian armies behind them. I mean, it's over. And then God brings hope in a hopeless place by blowing a wind and splitting the sea, and they came through. That's the character of God, that He takes things that are dead and He makes them alive again. And when we come to the coldness of the tomb on Holy Saturday, what do we see as we stand out there? Our Savior dead. We're between the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh again. Don't you remember those haunting words that we heard from the disciples? We thought He was the one to redeem us. But He's dead. And then the creative power of God to bring that which is dead to life again is on display for us in the person and work of His Son. That's the Advent word of the Gospel. That when we find ourselves in those hopeless places which we will all know... I don't want to sound too glum this morning, right? Sorry. But Job was on to something when he said that man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. We're born to trouble. We live in this world. And here we see this hope, this confidence that's pushed into the future to believe that what God says is ultimately true. Well, let's look at these verses here. Behold, verse 14, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Judah. I'll make good on my promise. And in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth from David. A righteous branch. Another way of putting that is a little sprig. One of the favorite themes and metaphors that God uses in in the prophets is that of a cut-down tree. 
When you talk about the judgment of God, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 10. What is the judgment of God like? The judgment of God is like the great tree feller coming through and cutting down a tree. And a lot of that metaphor has to do, frankly, with the fact that only God Himself is raised and exalted. And whenever human nations, whenever God's people raise and exalt themselves in a place that really is alone for God Himself, God comes in and He cuts down the tree. That's what He does. He's the great tree feller. But you I was just out of my backyard yesterday doing some cleaning we, we, and some raking. We cut down a tree. And that thing is gone. It's not going to grow really big anymore. But lo and behold, I had to go through and cut down all these other little stems that came out of this dead tree. The big old stems that are all all around. I had to cut them down. Why? Because out of what seems to be something that's lifeless, you look closely and there's a little green branch that's coming through. A zama, a a, a branch, a a little seedling, which speaks to new life on the far side of real death, a real cutting down. And this is the promise that's made to the house of David. There's a promise that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to David that there will be a righteous king on your throne forever. So He's promised a king, a Davidic king, a royal king to be on the throne. But if you notice here as well, verse 17 says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn cereal offerings, and to make sacrifice forever. What's the promise of the future that gives Israel hope in the middle of this moment of judgment? You'll have a king, and you'll have a priest. You'll have a king who will represent me on the earth, who will execute justice and righteousness, who will act with equity, who will live in accordance with the norm of my own law, with my own instruction, and you will also have a priest to stand before me to bring, to be that mediator between God and humanity that affects the forgiveness and the reconciliation of God toward His people. What is that future hope? How does it take shape here in Jeremiah? The days are coming when I'm going to make good on my promise. And when that happens, when you're in that day where the promise is made good on, and you can look back on it and say, there God goes again, making good on His Word. What will you see? You'll see a king, and you'll see a priest. John Calvin, who you all know, I've got a lot of time for this man. John Calvin was, I think, the first to make great use of that threefold office. I've talked about it in here before, but you can never really say enough. Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we see here in Jeremiah that the coming figure will be both king and priest. Now the king who's on the throne at this time with Jeremiah is a king whose name is Zedekiah. Or Zedekiah is another way of putting that. The righteousness of the Lord. Back in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. And I'm going to read this to you if you don't mind. This is a little kick in the knee at Zedekiah, who was anything but the righteousness of the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, Behold, days are coming. Says the Lord, I will raise up a branch. Sounds very much like our passage here. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. That is that righteous branch. He will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh, 
Zedekenu. So what's Zedekiah's name? Zedekiah. It's a reversal of the king's name. From Zedekiah to Yahweh Zedek. Right? It's a reversal of his name. There's a kind of fun pun, I think, that's going on here in the Hebrew against the current king. Right? The king that's on the throne right now claims to be the righteousness of God, but he's actually the inverse of that. But the coming king will be named the Lord our righteousness. Now, something that I find actually rather profound about that, and I do think that even within the, the Jewish tradition, they've had trouble with this. One can see this in certain ways. I won't go into that. But here you actually have the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, that personal name of God, the name that was never spoken. Even with my students at Beeson, um, I, I tell them, when we come to the name Yahweh in the Hebrew text, let's not say Yahweh, let's say Adonai out of respect for the divine name. It's an old practice, but it's one um, that is, uh, is venerable to my mind. And, to the, and it was such a significant aspect of Israel's religious life that as time went on and the name was not pronounced, they no longer remembered how to pronounce it properly. How do you pronounce the Tetragrammaton? Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. How do you say that? No one knows. Some say Jehovah. That's just taking the vowel sounds from Adonai. And slapping them onto those consonants, Jehovah, that's fine. I mean, it's no better than any other one. Some scholars think it's a little bit more scholarly to say Yahweh, but they're, they're all constructs. We don't know what that name sounds like. Because what they would call the divine name was either Adonai or simply say Hashem, the name. That's it. They just call it the name. So here you have this most holy name. All the other names of God are predicates. They are descriptors of His being. El Elyon, the Mighty One. El Shaddai, the Strong One. These are all descriptions of God's character. But Yahweh, that's His, that's his personal name. That's His covenantal name. That's the name by which God communicates His own identity to His people. You remember this in Jonah 1, don't you? Here you have the sailors out there. They're offering sacrifices. They're praying to their gods, their Elohim. And then by the end of it, they're making sacrifices and vows to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. This is significant. And here we have in Jeremiah 23, 6, a promise um, that I think only in retrospect do we realize the significance of what's being claimed here, that this coming Davidic figure, this coming Messianic figure, will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. He will be identified as Yahweh. It's actually kind of blows your hair back. Because no one would assume that the... I mean, David's never called Yahweh. Um, Solomon's never referred to as Yahweh. But here we have this coming figure who's, the, who's predicated with that very unique name of God Himself, Yahweh, our righteousness. So that when we come and follow Jesus in the Gospels, and maybe stand off to the side of that Palestinian street, right? And watch Him do His thing as we enter into the narratives of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What are we seeing? We're seeing the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 23. That the one who was promised to come, that Davidic king, is actually not just a Davidic king, a human representative. He is that. But he's also Yahweh enfleshed. 
mean, what's he doing as he stands in the bow of that boat and he tells the storm to stop? And then it just stops. And that metaphorical reflection probably back on, on Jonah. Who has the power to do this kind of thing but God Himself? Peter got it, didn't he? Lord, don't even look at me. I'm a sinful man. I mean, who has the power to see the centurion's daughter dead and to walk by that little girl and to say, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. And lo and behold, she's up and walking about. Who has the power to do that? Who has the power to to see this woman who comes in and really a kind of activity of public shame as she lets her hair down? as she begins to wash Jesus' feet with the oil and with her tears. And then Jesus, just I think to tick the Pharisees off, says, and young lady, your sins are forgiven. And what do the Pharisees grumble among themselves? They got it. They understood. Who has the power to forgive sins but God Himself? Who does He think He is? Answer, He thinks He's Yahweh. That's who He thinks He is. And then when you come to that temple scene, And Jesus is flipping tables. And this isn't blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, meek and mild, you know, the kind of wimpy, hippie Jesus. This is, I don't know, WWF Jesus. I mean, he's flipping tables. I mean, he's driving people out. It's, it's a violent scene. You're kind of, you know, there's moments where you kind of look at Jesus and you want to go, you know, you're not quite adding up to who I thought you're supposed to be. But here he is, driving them out of the temple court. Why? Because this is a house of prayer. They knew. Psalm 98, other psalms as well, that when Yahweh returned to His temple, He would return to cleanse His temple. And what is Jesus doing? He's embodying the very activities of Yahweh Himself. He's Yahweh in human flesh. That's the promise from Jeremiah 23 that we see fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus, that He's fully God and He's fully man in one subject, which seems so obtuse and so esoteric theologically, but it's at the core of our salvation. Because He is our prophet, He is our priest, and He is our King. He's our human representative, and He's our also the only priest in the history of the whole of the Jewish tradition who was both priest and victim at the same time, bringing His own self to the Father. And that's why I want you to look at this here, or I'll look at it for you. In verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let me give you a quote from Calvin, if I may. Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, its hunger, its cold, its contempt, its reproaches, and other troubles. Content with this one thing, that our King will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. Because of Him, because of our King, we have hope that He will not leave us alone in this world or the world to come. And now, when you come to chapter 33, verse 16, I think we see something that I I think is rather astounding. And it will be called Yahweh Zedek Nu. Who's it? Remember back in chapter 23, we saw that it's the Messiah, the coming Messianic figure, who will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
And now as we move further along in the narrative development of the book of Jeremiah, we actually see the people of God, the city of God itself, called Yahweh, our righteousness. Here, the king's own righteousness, an alien righteousness, is given to his people and it's applied to them. It's why you see the Apostle Paul say, I think some of these kind of crazy statements where he calls the Corinthians saints. Have you read the book of Corinthians? It's a mess. Son-in-law sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, that's not fun. Uh, People taking each other to court. There's debates about who's following. I mean, any sort of notion that you might have that the early church was this sort of apostolic golden era. I mean, just, just read the Bible. It was just kind of messy as it is now, right? It's messy. And here, Paul looks at this motley crew of believers in Corinth and says, you are holy ones. You're saints before the Lord because of what Jesus has done for you. What we see, I think, within the logic of Jeremiah is something that really shapes our understanding of the gospel. Our righteousness, just like Judah's righteousness, is derivative of that prior interior righteousness that comes from the king alone. It's a derivative reality. It is who we are. We're righteous completely and fully in Him. We are, and you realize this right, we're in Advent about our own true selves as well. We're in a, we're in a season of anticipation about who we really are. I mean, I, I've said this to you before, but let's put a kind of Advent spin on this. When you recognize that our true humanity is found in the humanizing human, Jesus Christ, our King, our prophet, and our priest. That is our true humanity, bound up with Him. Jesus did not come to take us out of the corporal, physical world, but to redeem that world, to make it His own, Holy and completely. I mean, we've got some wacky hymns, frankly, um, from the pietistic period of the latter 19th century and early 20th century that talk about leaving our bodies and going up to be there. And it, the, the kind of stuff that was really fodder for some pretty good far side cartoons. You know, you remember that one where the two guys are sitting on the cloud in heaven? They're obviously disembodied souls. And the one looks at the other and says, um, Boy, if I'd have known it was so boring up here, I'd have brought some magazines. Right? I mean, it's not disembodied existence. The new heavens and the new earth is embodied. It's flesh. Jesus came to redeem the flesh. He came to redeem the body. He came to bring us back to Eden, the humanizing human. What real human flourishing, what real humanity is. Do you want to know what real humanity is? We look at Jesus. He's the humanizing human. So in this time of Advent, we're kind of waiting for our own true selves as well. It's Jesus' vicarious humanity. The real you and the real me are safely hid in Christ to be revealed at the final time. I don't know this sounds kind of maybe schizophrenic, but I look forward to meeting me. <laughs> I do. It's like, oh, that's what it was supposed to be like, right? 
all those times, all those arguments, all those picky units, details that I got upset about, my, my OCD kicking in, all that stuff, it would be really nice to meet the real me, right? Oh, that's the real me, right? This, this is it. Because Jesus has, hum- has brought about humanity, my humanity, your humanity, as it should be. So when you live in frustration about yourself, which if you're like me, I'm assuming you sort of live with that every day. Like, good night. Just frustrated myself. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel in this season of Advent. We wait for His coming, and with His coming, He brings us to in the fullness of who we are without the bondage and without the chains of the sin that we live in day in and day out. So as we move forward in this season of Advent, and then we burst forth in joy at the baby in a manger, God incarnate, our Savior, our King, our Priest, I pray that you'll find love again in what might be your hopeless place. Because all the promises of God, all of them, are yes and amen in Jesus. And it's why we sing with all of our hearts during this season, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. Seal these words, O Lord, into our hearts. And I pray that in this season of Advent, you will let us know and believe that what you say is true, that we are caught in the tensions of life, and that we yearn, Lord, we yearn for you to come and to make it right. We yearn for you, Lord, to execute and fulfill that which you have already laid the down payment for in full in your death and in your resurrection. We yearn for that, Lord. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And Father, as we live in our lives, as we relate to each other, as we relate to our children, as we relate to those who are in our sphere of influence, as we recognize in these relationships, Lord, the weakness of our own flesh and our inability to really be who you've called us to be. I pray that you'll fill us with hope, Jesus, that when you return, you are bringing us with you. Even so, Lord, come. Amen.